0: The Bible says to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. And Lauren threw me a curve there. I thought, wait, what? <laughs> my turn already? I've got to warn you, uh, Cam was telling me before the service that, uh, oh my goodness, they've put up sound things there, so now the, the the clock that is usually on the wall, I don't have it, so I'm going to have to defend, depend on my Fitbit to keep us on time. But this is at least a 10,000 step message. So I'll just keep going till I hit 10,000 and then, then we'll stop. No, I'm just kidding. Are you glad to be here this morning? I hope that you are enjoying uh, the transition of the weather. I'm not a huge fan of the cold, but I am a huge fan of coming into a warm house and uh, a fire in the fireplace and just all the, the good times that occur in that context. Well, we, I've got a lot to say this morning. <laughs> As my wife just thought, as if you don't other times. But uh, this morning I want to talk to you about seven great moments in the life of a believer. And we're going to be drawing these seven great moments. We're actually only going to deal with three of them uh, this Shabbat. And then next week we'll finish out as we're continuing this series called The Lion's Roar. As we're looking, uh, studying through the book of Revelation not in the context of seeing ourselves as victims, but seeing ourselves as victors. Trying to uh, walk through these passages in the same way we would walk through the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John or one of the epistles of Paul, trying to just draw out uh, information that the Lord wants us to hear. And boy, the lion has roared. And so every one of those letters ends with this statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that that's, a, that's an invitation for us to open our hearts and minds to really ask the Lord to speak. I remember when I was a teenager, we used to go to a youth conference every summer, and there was the, the, the one preacher who had started this ministry. He was known for always asking us to pray this prayer before we began to study His Word, And to go into a season of preaching was simply this Lord God, speak to me. The lion has roared. The question today is will we open our hearts to hear what the Ruach HaKodesh, what the Spirit wants to say, not just to the congregation, but to His bride? to his people. Will you pray with me? Oh, Abba Father, we are blessed to be here today. We're so thankful to be able to come into this uh, facility that's- just a blessing that Timber Creek allows us to be here and to commandeer their facility on every Saturday. We're so thankful for them and pray blessings on them. But Lord, I also pray pray blessings and ask for your presence today in our midst. Father, I pray that your presence would also be felt strongly in the homes of those who are joining us online from around the nation and maybe even around the world, Father, that your spirit would meet them in this moment, whether they are watching it with us live or... uh, Take time to watch later, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully, that they would hear your voice, and they would listen attentively, not for what you're saying about somebody else, but what you're saying to us. I pray this in Yeshua's name and for his glory. Amen. So we've come to Revelation 2 and 3, and we've come to these seven letters that... Jesus is dictating to John and throughout the ages if you if you read different uh, commentaries people will give different ideas about what are the nature of these letters some will simply say that they're just for those seven churches in the generation in which the, the generation which received those letters. And I've got to tell you, there's, there's a lot of merit to that in the sense that the things that we see in these passages and these letters happening in our day, uh, they were already happening in their day. And so these messages directed to these seven churches in Asia were very meaningful. I mean, if I was one of those churches, I mean, I would think of this as a great privilege to receive this letter that I knew was from Yeshua himself, uh, given specifically about uh, our church. Some have seen these as a description of seven prophetic ages of the church, and they've kind of taken the last 2,000 years, and they've kind of looked at how each letter chronologically they've tried to see if that kind of matches a season in church history, and I've read some of those, and I'm not trying to demean that approach, because certainly this is the word of God, it's prophecy, it has prophetic application, but I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's certainly been applicable to all of the generations of the church uh, during that time. But I believe that these are descriptions of perpetual challenges that continue throughout the life of the church until the Messiah comes. I see these letters as calling us to become champions, calling us to become overcomers, Now, I have to begin by being honest and telling you there are some extremely negative things that Yeshua has to say very directly and very specifically to his people. I would dare say that while most of us would say, oh, yes, Lord, speak to me, most of us would not be that in favor of having him get this specific about us. Amen? I mean, I would, Lord, if you want to send a letter about them down there on that other corner, go ahead. But, you know, we got it all together, right? So I don't think so. These letters are filled with admonition. Now, that's a word that we don't use a lot anymore, so I want to define it. Admonition, or to admonish somebody, is to give counsel and warning. And we tend to focus on the negative aspect of that because normally the admonition is calling out a behavior that needs to be changed or a belief or a mindset. And so when you're getting admonished, it's not usually because you're doing something right, it's because you need to step up and do something better. But all of these letters end or or include these words, to him who overcomes. The implication is clear. You're either going to be the overcome or you're going to be the overcomer. Admonishment, please hear this, is never about criticism that stifles progress. Admonishment is always given for the sake of advancement. Meaning the end of the story isn't that you got called out for doing something wrong, but that in getting called out for doing something wrong, challenged to do something better, you improve. I was uh, privileged to be a football coach in Union County, Indiana for about eight and a half seasons. And I, I really loved it, but I, at the same time, I was a youth pastor and then a pastor of a church in that town, and I began to notice there was a dramatic difference between the way people wanted me to coach their sons and the way the church wanted me to speak to them. As a coach, I was expected to be very specific about what a player wasn't doing right, because otherwise, the player didn't improve. I was allowed to be very specific. But I found that once I got in the pulpit, and I love this church, I'm not speaking ill of them at all, but getting too specific was a recipe for conflict. As long as I just kind of shot over everybody's head, as long as I didn't get real specific, everything was okay. I found that in coaching, I got to be more honest than sometimes in preaching. And when you get to Yeshua's letters, man, he's a... Uh, He's not holding his punches, is he? I had a young man, maybe one of the best athletes that uh, I had at the time, who was um, very immature, and he came in uh, one day after practice, and he was quite frustrated, and he wanted to have a meeting. And so he had his cousin with him, so we went into the coach's office, and we closed the door, and this young man was very tall. He was a superb athlete. And he said, I don't understand what's going on. Why aren't you guys using me? And his feeling was that he was being overlooked. He was mad because on defense, we had put him as a defensive end on the weak side. And when he heard those words weak side, he took it personally. In spite of the fact that we had put him on the weak side because that gave him the greatest opportunity for the glory of sacking the quarterback. He was was positioned exactly where he needed to be to gain the most glory. But because of one word he didn't see what was going on. But what he was really mad about was at the time, he's like maybe 6'2", and our quarterback was like 5'8", and uh, we, had to, we had to tell our offensive line, don't stand up too much on pass plays because he can't see over you. And this young man just couldn't understand why he wasn't playing quarterback. And I said, do you really want me to tell you? And he said, yeah, I said, no do you really want me to tell you? He goes, well, well, yeah. And I said, son, you stink. I said, you are terrible. You should have seen his face. I said, now let me explain what I mean by that. You're the best athlete on this team, but you're not coachable. We tell you on a pass play that when a quarterback drops back to pass, if there's penetration through the line and people start coming at you, where do you go? Do you run back or do you go forward? Now it's counterintuitive when you see people coming aggressively towards you to step towards them. But that's what we call staying in the pocket. Do you know what I mean by this? By the way, it's fall, so you're going to get some football illustrations. Deal with it. Okay? This young man had a tendency... And as soon as that ball was snapped, if he saw anything coming at him, he ran out of the pocket. And pretty soon he's running around all in the backfield and he's getting sacked. I looked at his cousin, who by now had kind of ducked his head. And I said, have I said anything about him that's not true? And he said, no. (laughs) And I said, Steve, why have I told you that? Is it because I want you to stop trying to be a good quarterback? Or is it because I want you to listen to what your coach is saying so you can become a great quarterback? Admonishment isn't about stopping your progress. It's about advancing. There are those in the body of Christ who are much like that young man because the, the scripture will t- call us to do things, to step into the fray, to engage the enemy where our natural inclination is to run the other direction. And no matter what the scripture says, they are uncoachable, but for those who listen, they can become unstoppable. Now I say all that because we're about to hear some strong admonition from the Lord to those churches and to us. But I wanna frame this in a very positive way. That's why I'm referring to it as seven great moments in the life of the church because what happens in that moment when you see somebody, as a coach, I can tell you that moment that you're looking on the field and you see a young man do what he's been coached to do, it's a thrilling moment. When you see that someone has finally learned the lesson and move as a pastor when you see someone finally realize it's time to disengage the mouth and engage the knees. It's an amazing thing, and these are seven amazing moments. So the first one is the moment... You return to your first love. Let me read uh, the first letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Coach says... Well done, well done. You know, we need to hear that sometimes, don't we? I was at a basketball game in Wellston, Oklahoma one time and our team surprisingly beat the other team. And things had gotten, as they say, really chippy between the two teams. Uh, There were some racial things going on. But I had zeroed in on one young man on the other team who just, man, he was all in. To the last minute, I mean, he was fun to watch. He was, he was aggressive in defense. He was aggressive in offense. And, and when the team game was over, I don't know why, but as he was coming, I was headed to the door, and he, their team was coming towards the door. And I just said, hey, number 10, excellent hustle. Just excellent. You should have seen his face. I didn't try to engage him in any more conversation other than that. But as I walked past him, I felt this hand grab my shoulder and just squeeze. You know, some of you today may need to know that the Lord is with you. he's, He's watching and he's aware that sometimes it's hard. But then sometimes you have to say some tough things. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. May I just throw in here, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans. Amen? That was weak. I need more. Come on team, coach is in the house. Yet this you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What an amazing moment when you see someone take the instruction you've been given and grow with it. Run with it. I was also a freshman football coach, and I coached the linemen. And we were just having a terrible time, and one day I told the head coach, I said, listen, no, we're not coming over here with the varsity. We've gotta have a meeting. And I took my team aside, these young players, and I just asked a simple question. I said, what is the difference between what an offensive lineman can do and a defensive lineman can do? Now, these kids have been playing football most of their lives, and they just looked at me with a blank stare. And I said, guys, a defensive lineman can use his hands. You should have seen the look on their face. What? Really? Yeah, I know we tell you on offensive line, don't hold, but on the defense, you can grab them and throw them all you want. It was, it was a hysterical moment as they looked at each other and went, really? Yeah, football 101. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, it's time to get back to the basics. It's time to get back to remember how this thing was supposed to be. And if you, if you remember in your own spiritual journey, when you came to faith in the Lord, it was probably a lot less complicated than it has become today. Amen? Amen? Back then, you were just overwhelmed with his love, overwhelmed with his goodness, that he would love you enough to send his son to die for you, to give his life for you. And now you find yourself, and this is true of regardless of the flavor of the body of Christ that, that you may have come from or been in or even in the one you're in here today, but it seems like we just multiply. Issues. Well, yeah, okay, you love the Lord, but... What about this, and what about this, and what about this and what about am I the only one? I mean, I grew up in the church where we talked about how the Jewish leaders would just add and add and add and add. and I like, oh man, those crazy old Jewish Pharisees. How could they do that? And then I'd turn around and I finally looked at what we were doing in the church and what we were doing, just add and add and add and add. What about just loving the Lord? What about that love that motivates you? I'm sorry about the football illustrations, but I'm going to do it anyway. We lost a JV game. I mean, we really lost the JV game. And when the game was over and the young guys were in the locker room, I'm standing outside, and I see a delegation of parents coming. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. oh That can't be good. They came to me, and they said, we want to talk to you. I said, yeah, yeah, tough loss. They said, we don't care about that. They said, Brent, we came here to tell you something. And I'm just going to tell you what one of the dads told me. He said, Brent, our sons love you. And they would drink your dirty (laughs) bathwater. Graphic. He said, they love Playing for you. Do you remember how it used to be when you just loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, when you just loved Jesus, when you loved Yeshua? I think one of the the restorations in the Messianic movement, the Hebrew Roots Movement, is that moment when someone kind of wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, I used to really love Jesus. What happened? Well, you better find out. Because Yeshua sends this letter to the church of Ephesus, and he says, you have forgotten your first love. And it's time to get back to basics. I want to read another letter that John wrote from 1 John chapter 4, and I want you to just listen to what he says. And I mean really listen, not just to me talking, but to what the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving John to say to us. Beloved, do not believe, let me make sure I'm reading the right one, Let me start with verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. You know how we know the Spirit of Antichrist is already in the world? Because people who used to claim to be believers, Messianic and Christian, no longer name Yeshua as the Messiah. That's the fruit of the root they dove into. He said, but you are, you are from God, little children. You have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He who has an ear, let him hear. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Guys, this, this is discipleship 101. This is what it means to be a believer 101. It's not about all of the the, the holidays you celebrate or the commandments you keep. If you are not walking in love, I didn't say it, he said it, you don't know God. That's what he said. Now, Now, I'm gonna tell you later about someone that said that recently and they weren't an apostle of the Lord. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I I encourage you just to go back home and finish reading John chapter four, First John 4. Yeshua warned us in Matthew 24, 12 that because of the increase of wickedness, sinfulness in the last days, the love of many would grow cold. So, how can we get back to loving people if sin is increasing exponentially? That's a tough equation, isn't it? Because the more sinful they become, the more of a target we become. Am I, am I right? but there's this little equation. How do we do do that? How can we get back to loving people while sin is increasing? Stay in the pocket. Don't disengage, engage. Romans 5 20, where sin increases, God, grace increases exponentially. Now, as people who know the full biblical definition of grace from the Old Testament word chesed, which is loving kindness, we have to understand that while we're looking at the sinfulness increasing in the world, we should also have an expectation of the rise of grace and the New Testament word karos, which is not about a pagan deity. It's about the love and power that God pours out in our lives. Yeah, We have people online trying to make you think that you can't celebrate the grace that is talked about in the New Testament because the Greek word that describes it was used for, oy vey. (laughs) I mean, they just suck the joy out of everything. It's like walking into a room and at the far end of the room, there's a million dollars and they say, look, it's yours. All you got to do is walk across the floor. Well, that's easy. Except that the floor is just a a a patchwork, a checkerboard of lines. It's impossible. Your foot is bigger than the lines. You can't get there. That's the that's the kind of life they live. But God says where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That's why I'm saying this is an amazing moment. This is an amazing moment for the people of God to say, you know what, sin is increasing, but this is a time not when I should be allowing my love to grow cold, but for my love to cause me to step into the grace and power of God and engage the world with the truth that I know, amen? This isn't the season of defeat This is the season of our destiny where we become the testimony where people see the manifestation of the kingdom of God, his power and his presence growing exponentially in us and the manifestation of that is love. Loving even those people that think grace is a pagan deity. It gets exhausting, doesn't it? but we can't let our love grow cold. That's the fastest way, because here's what happens. The minute we let our love grow cold, guess what happens? We stop doing the deeds we've been called to do. Paul talks about the deeds that were prepared in advance for us to do. Well, guess what? They go left undone because we decide to disengage. But what an amazing moment it could be. Second amazing moment, is that moment when you realize that your advocate is greater than your adversary. Let me read the second letter to the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your deeds, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will be you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. I love verse nine when Yeshua says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and that you're a victim of false accusations. Do you remember the three parts of our testimony? The three parts of our testimony are the tribulation, which is how God shows triumph in our lives, not, not to be victims, but to be victors. The kingdom power, his presence, and the perseverance. Yeshua says, I see it and I know it. I, I pay attention. Now Satan can come at us through people and his main objective is fear. Why does he want to inspire fear in us? And let me just backtrack and say, for these people in Smyrna that uh, Jesus refers to as a synagogue of Satan, why does he say that? Where is the Roman persecution coming from? At this particular point in time, it's coming because of a group of religious Jewish people who are petitioning the Romans to deal with the Christians. Eh. That doesn't mean be mad at all Jews. But in that generation, that's what was happening. And to curry favor with the Romans, that's what they were doing. Which meant the people that should have been their allies, if nothing else, at least we believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God, they're still going to appeal to Rome to deal with these Christians. Satan comes at us in this way, and his main objective is fear. Why does he want to inspire fear in us? Because fear causes retreat and faith causes advance. And admonishment is never about retreat, it's always about advance. It's always what needs to be said to cause us to move forward. Fear says you're gonna lose, faith says, I'm sorry, I've already won. Fear says, I, I, they're not going to love me. Faith says, I am loved by God so much. Fear says, disengage. Faith says, engage all the more. And by the way, have more grace to do it. Satan wants you to be afraid. I didn't have the privilege of, when I was growing up, of playing little league football. I didn't start playing until I was a freshman in high school, and consequently, I didn't really have a real big sport mentality, and I hadn't really been engaged in mixing it up like you did when you were a kid in Little League. And so when I started, I had all the physical tools, but the heart and the mind just weren't, you know, there was fear. There was a lot of fear. And so I didn't ever play up to my potential until about my senior year. And there just comes this moment where you just stop being afraid. I was walking back to the huddle one time and a guy on another team who was well-known sucker punched me. It It was very well done, actually. I just happened to walk close enough by him on the way as we were passing and he just, boom. I went to the huddle and the person that was bringing in the play brought the play and I said, no. We're going to run 21X trap. I was a lineman. He goes, but Co- I don't care what coach said. We're going to run 21X trap. Run it. Now, why did I want him to do that? Well, see, that guy was a defensive lineman on the other side, and I was a right side guard, and 21X trap meant I got to go clean his clock. <laughs> and fear Gave way to confidence. I laid him out. Eventually got back to the sideline when that series was over, and our coach was a mountain of a man. He said, Avery. I said, yes, coach. Did you change my play? I said, yes, sir, I did. Don't you ever do that again. Yes, sir. I started to walk away. Avery, yes sir, good call. (laughs) There's just this amazing moment when you suddenly realize that there's nothing to be afraid of. You can get hit and you can get back up. You can fail and the Lord still loves you. You cannot have all of your pronunciation right and the gates of heaven will still open for you. In all these seven letters, not once does he say, I'm just done with you. There's no chance for you. I mean, what a moment when tribulation becomes triumph and our poverty is actually our prosperity. This was a church that was really actually dealing with uh, poverty because of what the Romans were doing to the fellowship of the Christians because of this synagogue of Satan was poking Rome on their behalf. These people were, were actually knowing what poverty was and Yeshua says, you're not poor, you're rich. When accusations become an opportunity for me to stay in the pocket. But they're saying mean things about me. So what? Faith says, step in, not run away. Why? Because I have an advocate who is alive. He has overcome the accuser and the accusation. I want to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. I'm sorry I didn't have my notes printed out with all the scriptures this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I, I mean, Paul's really saying, case closed, end of story. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul is saying, if he was willing to give you his son, you don't think he's going to give you what you need when people are accusing you, when people are bringing tribulation and suffering against you? Don't you understand? That's when the father is more motivated than ever to give you all things. How can you assume otherwise? Then verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. Why? Because my great high priest stands at at the right hand of the Father, being my advocate. And instead of being deflated by fear, I should be puffed up by faith. Confident in who is interceding. Now, I realize this is all great coaching encouragement talk. Because I don't know what your tribulation is. I don't know what your poverty is. I don't know what people are saying about you. I went through a period, we went through a period, where the Lord spoke to me and he said, Brent, step back, step out and watch what happens. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. It wasn't. I'm just going to be honest with what happened. The church that we grew up in got a whole bunch of bad intel about what I believe. And they turned on us. Some of them turned on us. This movement started spreading rumors about things I hadn't said to the kids, and they turned on me. And the Lord had already told me, you can't do anything about it. Step back, step out, watch what happens. Because we sing about it all, I mean, it's a great lyric in a song, is The Lord is my strength, the Lord is my shield, he's my defender. It sings wonderfully, but when it's actually happening, it's not so pleasant, is it? And sometimes you have to have the confidence of the one who is fighting on your behalf. What an incredible moment for the body of Christ. To come to that place where we stop fearing the tribulation and start anticipating the triumph of his presence poured out for us. Come on. Amen? Anybody? Now, that doesn't mean it's not that those moments of challenge aren't going to be painful, those moments of accusations don't hurt. All of that's very real. The Lord doesn't take away from that. But he does give us an overwhelming love and grace to endure it and to press on. You see, for them, this wasn't theoretical. Just 19 years after these words were written, a man named Polycarp became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And when faced with the option to acknowledge Caesar as God or die, he chose to bear witness for Christ and was martyred in that place. A victor, not a victim. He chose. How do you do that? How do you choose to engage when it's life or death? You have to know who your advocate is. Well, third one for today. The church in Pergamum. And this one's really kind of heavy. And to the church, or to the angel in the church in Pergamum, write: the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this: I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Remember, again, this isn't theoretical for these people. Church, someday it's not going to be theoretical for some of us. But I have a few things against you. Because you have have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the... In the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one else knows but he who receives it. This is an amazing moment for the person who receives the admonition that Yeshua gives to the church, to the believers in Pergamum, and and notice he always says to the churches, so it's obvious the message isn't just to the church in Pergamum. This is an amazing moment when you begin to realize who fights for you, because when you realize who fights for you, you also learn how to fight the right way. I love that Yeshua says that he knows where they dwell, literally the place of Satan's throne. This is so appropriate for Pergamum. This is the first city in Asia Minor to specifically build a temple to Caesar Augustus. These were, they, they called themselves the temple wardens. These were the, this was the place where Rome had its strongest foothold in regard to emperor worship and Caesar worship. And so if that's the case, you know the pressure put on Christians because they, look, Rome knew that Jews and Christians would not affirm Caesar as God. And in, in fact, in, in Jerusalem, they, they kind of had a, uh, they got a pass on that because they knew it was never going to happen. And if, if it was never going to happen, then it was just going to be a constant upheaval and a constant battle. But they're not in Jerusalem. They're in Asia Minor. They're in a province of Rome, and Jesus says, "I know where you're. Literally living at ground zero for emperor worship. Yet you have remained faithful." They have also already been eyewitness to martyrdom. Antipas has already lost. I mean, this is not theoretical. This this is very real. They they have experienced, they have seen firsthand the choice that is before them. But they must be admonished about regarding the presence of false teachers. Now, I want to remind you of the spirit of Antichrist, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. The error of Balaam is that false teaching, and it's mentioned here. And Jesus puts it right beside the Nicolaitans um, who share that same... You know, the Nicolaitans, they were all about, well, their answer to Romans 6 1, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? The Nicolaitans would say, yes. It doesn't matter, you're going to be saved anyway. They were the original once saved, always saved crew. <laughs> oh, now I'm in trouble. I was pleased when I was doing some study for this. I came across uh, a scholar who kind of brought out some things that I have brought out in the past about this. Judaism looks at the meaning of uh, Balaam's name and associates it with the idea of someone who overcomes people. Well, how how did Balaam or Bilam in Hebrew, how, how did he overcome people? He put false teaching in front of him. Go ahead and interact with the world. Go ahead and sit down with their sons and daughters. Go ahead and take their daughters and sons for wives and husbands. The Nicolaitans, the name Nicholas, also has the idea of someone who is a victor over people. And so these people are actually, they're they're out to win something. They're out to win the hearts and minds of the people. It is amazing to me that it has taken the church in, in the United States so long to realize that what is happening in the, in the context of immorality in our nation is not just happenstance. The message has been intentional. Every time Hollywood said, well, we're, gonna, we're patting themselves on the back for pushing the envelope, what they were really saying was, we're patting ourselves on the back because we've gotten away with changing the definition of what is pure and holy one more time. We've pushed our culture and our children one step closer to believing sexual immorality is okay. It's just an alternative lifestyle. It's amazing that it took us so much time and, and we, we, we watch these shows and finally we're beginning to realize, even in the commercials, that we are being shown images that are an intentional attempt to change the way we see right and wrong. It's intentional, amen? It wasn't wasn't an accident. But sometimes we are just not very bright in the body of Christ, I'm sorry. We, we, We think, oh, well, they don't mean it like that. Well, I remember years ago sharing with a congregation about the Smurfs And I got laughed at. I said, they're they're using terminology that is actual terminology from occultism. They're, they're, They're borrowing actual phraseology and terms and incantations. And, you know, everybody laughed at me except for one. A gentleman who came up to me who had gotten into witchcraft. And I said, how did you get into witchcraft? He said... Bewitched. For the younger generations, that was a TV show about a witch. A sitcom. And here was this young boy being abused physically, mentally, sexually, stuck in a 55-gallon drum in the middle of a room while everybody else, including his parents, partied and had debauchery around him. A boy that felt utterly powerless. But Hollywood showed him a picture of... All you got to do is one little wiggle of the nose and suddenly you're the one with the power. And so he got into witchcraft. This isn't accidental, it's intentional. And they want to overcome, they want to overwhelm us. And Jesus says, the, 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 the problem here is there's two things that these people are teaching. They are teaching that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols and it's okay to commit acts of sexual immorality. Both of these things are dealt with in the Council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Let me build a bridge for you between these two things because you will constantly find uh, the pairing of sexual sin and dietary restrictions from the earliest time in, in the history of the Bible. Why is that? To make it just as simple as possible, it's because they're both blood issues. The vast majority of things that people are told not to eat, be, that they're unkosher, is because the animal is carnivorous and the animal consumes blood. We are forbidden from blood. If you eat a carnivorous animal that has consumed blood, then you eat that animal, then you've consumed blood. And it creates a blood guiltiness. And God didn't want his people to to deal with that because it affects us. The other is sexual immorality, which is an issue of blood. And I know we have young ones in here, but parents, you can explain it to them later. But without blood, there is no intimacy. Years ago, I was preaching at Camp Yeshua and I told them, life is in the blood and it doesn't belong to you the life that is, that is carried to every part of my body through the blood that is within me, is the, the breath of God is his gift and I don't have the right to use my body to do things against the nature of how he has created him. Now that's interesting because here we are so many centuries later And these two issues are still the big issues that Satan is using to undermine the body of Christ. Now, what a moment this could be. The realization that the one who fights for me won the victory for me by giving his blood in death that I might live. So how am I going to fight? How do I deal with all of this stuff that's going around us well if those parents could see that their sons loved playing for me how much more should the lord see us loving living for him what would happen in the life of a believer or in the life of a congregation that truly bought into the words, I am not my own, I have been bought with a price, therefore I will honor God with my body? I'm glad that Yeshua fights for me, but I also need to learn how he fought because he said some very direct things. And we're about to enter into one of the most awkward seasons of the year. To many, the Christmas season has its origins in paganism. That's what they believe. Many believe that uh, they are doing the Lord's work by using this season to point out and condemn everything about Christmas and call it meat sacrificed to idols. They see it as a season of gross idolatry. Everybody looking at me. And they're right. It is a season of gross idolatry. But not the one they're thinking of. I'm talking about those who believe the sharp sword comes out of my mouth instead of his. Come on. I know it's going to get. Curl your toes back. Don't want to get awkward. This is tough because it's easy to see whether Christmas is pagan or not. It's easy to see that our culture has taken that and wrapped things around it that obviously, you know, greed and, you know, making our kids think that they have to have everything in the world. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could talk about that aren't necessarily beneficial. And I'm sure that there are things that go on that the Lord might actually hate, but he loves his people. I want to read a reminder from Jude. Beginning verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness uh, for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way uh, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as examples in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Now... Did you hear that? They're not just being sexually immoral. There is a rejection of biblical authority. This is the rebellion of Korah. Verse 9, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This is a dangerous time for the body of Christ, and here's why. Because some of us are sure we have the right and are called to pronounce railing judgments against our brothers and sisters in the greater body of Christ. And that's above your pay grade. Stay in the pocket. Stay in your lane. My friends, you don't have to embrace or do or participate anything that your conscience is not comfortable with. But the Lord said, go and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not mine. And not your neighbor's. The Lord acclaimed the believers for discernment, not for being demeaning, as I said last week. In this season that has become an open season for supposedly pointing out idolatry, there is an even greater sin of committing that idolatry by intentionally saying to the Lord, move over, Jesus, I got this one for you. I'll tell him. Where's the joy in that? So I'm going to give you Brent's prescription for what to do in the next month and a half. And maybe you can you can throw me out. The gospel is never pagan. Come on. The gospel is never pagan. It's not pagan on Sunday, and it's not more or less pagan on Saturday. It's never pagan to pronounce the story, the narrative of how the Lord loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. But he first had to be born. You know what actually takes place during this month? The entire month is suddenly dedicated to the whole birth narrative, which, by the way, the birth narrative begins with the uh, overshadowing of Miriam. I'm pro-life. When, when did the incarnation of Christ begin? At birth or conception? At conception. And you're going to hear that story told. You're going to hear the story of the witness of the wise man. You're, you're going to hear songs. And, and, and you know what? That doesn't mean you have to love every song you hear. But you know what? The worst thing in the world is to you've got to guard your heart because you know the Lord fought for us. He fought against those things that would deceive us, that would take us away from him, but he always loved the people. He wasn't fighting with them. He was fighting for us. This is a dangerous, dangerous season for those within this movement in particular, many of whom have had issues with Christmas because it is a gross act of idolatry to assume the right to nudge Jesus off his throne and say, "Well, you may not have come into the world to judge it, but I will." And you think, "Well, Brent, just because people bring that up, that doesn't mean they're condemning them. Guys, just last night, Chris, who never causes any controversy or stirs, stirs anything up, posted something on Facebook. And I just got a bag of popcorn, sat there and watched. And, and there, were peop- there were some people who were very reasonable in what they, their response, but there were also phrases like, that guy doesn't know the word and he doesn't know, the, doesn't know Abba. I'm sorry, is that the double-edged sword coming out of your mouth? Another person posted that those people are not welcome at our convocation. When did you shed your blood for those he invited to the table? Come on, church. We are about to go into a season of tri- tribulation and, and conflict in the world. It, doesn't, it shouldn't be happening among his own body, his own bride. So, when you don't have to turn off your favorite Christian worship station for a month, you can sing along and worship and remember the great story of the conception and the birth. And that doesn't mean you have to go out and buy a Christmas tree. You don't have to go out and cut down a Christmas tree, but you better stop cutting down believers. Maybe we need to get the Yule log out of our, you know, before we worry about the Yule log in someone else's eye, let's get the tree, the forest of condemnation out of ours. Amen? Amen. Because it's not time to disengage with the body of Christ. It's time to engage because we need the body of Christ. Yeshua says some very direct things. Guys, this could be a great moment for us because what happens after admonishment is really what Yeshua cares about. It's not that we were able to parse all the verbs and all the definitions of, of the words of his admonition. It's did we take the admonition to heart and did we change and did we get in the game the way he wanted us to? That moment when we return to our first love where we begin to stop fearing the increase of sin because we're absolutely convinced of the love of the Father is going to pour out exponentially his love and grace and power into the hearts of believers. What a moment when you run off the field and you just just like, coach, I'm just getting beat up. I just, yeah. Coach says, get back in there. It's on. We're, we, we, haven't even, we haven't even begun to start playing yet. What a great moment it can be when we realize that our advocate is greater than our adversary, when fear loses out to faith and we re engage with people, and we need to re engage. People need to hear the story of the birth of Messiah. You know why? Because this movement has struggled with a big issue the deity of Yeshua. You know why they struggle with it? We don't tell the birth narrative, we don't talk about Emmanuel. We need to re engage, not isolate. And what would happen if we would? How many more people might listen to us talk about how much we love Passover and Shavuot and and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah? I mean, how many more people might Come to enjoy those holidays of the Bible that are, are the curriculum that tell us about redemption and revelation and, and all these things, reunion with Christ. How many more ears would listen to what we had to say if we'd stop attacking them? What a moment that it would be if we would finally realize that He's fighting for us. We don't have to fight against each other. But we do need to learn to fight the way he did. He laid down his life. He shed his blood so that someone else could live. He gave of himself. He didn't just rail at people. He showed them the full extent of his love. You see, There's a moment after admonishment where we get to make the choice whether we are going to be uncoachable or unstoppable. In Christ, we can be unstoppable. Walk, therefore, in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We'll have the benediction now.